Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm back here in the studio, joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy. Hi, Vinay. How are you? You're a frequent guest of the show now. What do you say to that? I'm happy to be a frequent <laughs> guest. You're living in the city of San Francisco, so we see each other quite yeah, often. absolutely. And you're now a key core. You're the core member of VK, uh, VK Prasad Lab. Is that fair to say? I'm honored. I'm honored. I think that's fair, yeah. And it's a real laboratory. You know, that's what people online, I saw them, you saw these haters, they're saying, uh, you know, why do people call it a lab if you're not doing pipetting? And I said, did you look at the stock photos on our website? We got yeah, a lot of pipetting. You have to check out. It's a real lab. <laughs> they don't realize that even, even our laboratory website was playing on that joke, but that's okay. Let it be lost on them. So we've had a busy week. Now, earlier this week, you accompanied me for what is going to be aired right after this, after this monologue. I'm going to put lecture five, the fifth lecture I give to that class. You were there for it. Is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I was there. You were the only one that I, I could get eye, visual eye contact for because it's tough to give lectures on Zoom these days, I'll be I honest with you. I think it's really tough, yeah. Really tough. It's really tough. It's no you feedback. You don't have the feedback. You can't see faces. You can't, can't see reactions. And I think it's very tough to give lessons on, on Zoom. It's like sensory deprivation for the speaker. It's awful. The class was on a certain topic that's near and dear to my heart, multiple hypothesis testing multiplicity. And... Oh, no, that wasn't the class this week. That was last week. This is the class on randomized control trials. This was on randomized, randomized control, trial, control trials. And um, you build up uh, mainly <laughs> on... I should remember what my class is. Okay, yeah, go on, go on. The, no, the you, you, build, yeah. you, build, you build your um, your talk on a recent paper you published with Logan Powell. Maybe you, you want to talk about that? That's a good point, yes. So, um, you know, as you know, uh, this is a class that I teach on appraising medical literature, the primary audiences, medical students, and uh, it is an elective, so it's really, you know, self-selected. People want to take this. And in the course, we cover, you know, um, medical reversal. We cover um, uh, uh, cost of cancer drugs. We cover surrogate endpoints and, and, and how we interpret cancer studies, control arms, crossover, those kinds of rules, how to read and interpret the literature, how to keep up with the literature. Um, and then we have a session on multiple hypothesis testing, multiple hypothesis testing or multiplicity, um, which used to be a problem just in observational literature, but now is also a problem in randomized trials. That's lecture four that I have not made available publicly. Um, maybe someday I'll make it available. Lecture five is on when are randomized control trials necessary. And it's based on, or at least a lot of the ideas are in that paper by Logan Powell and I, which is about whether or not smoking and parachutes are suitable analogies for when you don't need an RCT and if that applies to medical practices. In other words, as we all know, smoking is harmful odds ratio, something like 20 for lung cancer incidents. But nobody ever did an RCT to show smoking is harmful. We have retrospective observational studies that show it's harmful. That's true. Um, and similarly, parachutes. We, If you're thrown out of an airplane, you'd prefer to wear a parachute. We don't have a randomized control trial showing that's beneficial. But are those suitable metaphors for the day-to-day -day aspect of medicine? And that's what my lecture is about. That's what that paper's about. Maybe you can... You can start with, a, I think, a very interesting quotation about, uh, I think, a, a general, maybe too often misunderstood concept about randomization. People think that being in a trial with a randomization, um, if they are allocated to the control arm, um, it could be a disservice. somehow uh, yeah, a disservice or wrong. Or, and there's this uh, very nice quotation you i think it's uh, yeah, one only has to visit the graveyard of discarded therapies to know how many patients have benefit from being randomly assigned to the control arm by tom chalmers and i think that's the opening line of the of the lecture so yeah, yeah. Um, but it really is true i mean it's really it's really an apt point that we think 
you know, that the trials are all successful. But, you know, Ben Jubegovich and college have shown 50% of randomized control trials are not successful. And some are actually harmful. And people have actually done better. Some, on some trials, you had better survival outcomes on the control arm. I think the cardiac antiarrhythmic suppression trial, CAST, is one such example. And there are other examples where you were better off on the control arm. The randomized trials of autotransplant and breast. We talked about that on a, yeah, on, yeah, um, on the, first on the malignant series. We're going to come back to the malignant series when we have more time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's something I get into in this lecture, and I think that's an important point. Now I want to ask you about something before we go to this. Okay. Well, this is what I saw. You know, I've written an article about OncoAlert, and I just saw Milt Packer has an article that's kind of echoing this theme. Now, uh, you know, we, we can't profess to be experts on geopolitical strategy and foreign policy, uh, but, uh, you know, there is currently this situation going on in Ukraine. It's a terrible situation, and Russia has invaded, of course. And our sympathies are, of course, with the U Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting because governments really play a key role in foreign policy. But in addition to governments, in oncology at least, we had the OncoAlert community. This is, I guess, some self-announced self collection. It's a, it's a club. I guess it's a club, and maybe we call it a club or a gang. I don't know what to call it, but you know, they they created themselves, and uh, they issued a statement saying that we should pull out of all collaborations in Russia. Uh, we shouldn't do research in Russia, and you know, pull out of those cancer studies with Russian patients. Mill Packer, you know, the famous cardiologist, he has an article in I think MedPage today, um, this week, where he argues pharmaceutical companies should pull out of Russia, and I think it actually says in the article. And, you know, listeners should check me on this. This is the way I read it. It actually suggests they should no longer sell medical pharmaceutical products in that country. Now, my understanding of, um, of uh, sanctions is sanctions do put the squeeze on the average everyday Russian, sure. Uh, but it also puts the squeeze on the oligarchs, who in turn, the average person, and the oligarchs put the squeeze on, I think, people in power like Putin. Um, but it's being done by a government, you know, an agency that's thought through the logistics of this. Do we really want sanctions being done by random doctors? That's the part that I, I that troubles me. Yeah. And OncoAlert is a group of oncologists. And by the way, being a doctor, yes, you have your allegiance to your nation, but you have an allegiance to humanity that I think is supersedes nation. And the other point I want to make is not everyone in Russia is Putin. There are a lot of people who dis, who disapprove of his actions, and there are a lot of sick cancer patients who really have nothing to do with the day-to-day -day government. And even if our government chooses to place sanctions, I think that's one thing. But for an average sort of professional association or doctor to place their own sanctions on a cancer patient in Russia, I think is just bizarre. Um, yeah, I think to be fair, we saw that there were many pushback even from oncology being, being part of this um, association, of this uh, network. Um, for me, what is very strange when you go on this <coughs> network, you can find that they, they state that they are non-political. And actually, I think it, was not a non-political move. I think it was, uh, in my opinion, uh, quite a, political. A, um, a political, and I think it was a, not a good move. Um, we saw the same thing, I think, for an association in cardiology. No, um, I saw yeah, yeah. European Society of Cardiology. Yeah, yeah. They said we're not allowing Russian scientists to present yeah. their posters at our conference. And um, I was um, I was happy to see that th there were there there were a lot of pushback on Twitter about that. Many physicians that were very shocked about that. So I think this is really an issue. Maybe we we would not have the, have been seen that maybe a few years ago. Of course. And um, yeah, yeah. This is just I think if I were to sort of put my finger on what's going on here, you know, uh, how to handle foreign policy. You know, I do think governments need to sort that out, and uh, citizens can support their government or provide feedback to the government. But I do think this sort of random canceling of Russian cultural elements. Part
pouring the vodka out of your sink, um, canceling Tchaikovsky. Uh, you know, I, I know Tchaikovsky's been dead for a while. I don't know what Tchaikovsky had to do with the situation. You know, I don't think that's very helpful. People who are a Russian composer happen to be born in Russia, a Actually, ballerina. I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a piano player. I'm, I'm really fond of um, Russian mu music. And so mm -hmm. I don't imagine this to be canceled. I mean, that doesn't make sense. You like Tchaikovsky. I like Rachmaninoff. You like Rachmaninoff. Yeah. Tchaikovsky also. Tchaikovsky as well, yeah. But and it um, doesn't make sense if you if you think about it. You, sure. you won't cancel mm. every... Uh, or you won't cancel Solzhenitsyn. Maybe they want it. That's next. Solzhenitsyn, <laughs> they're going to cancel. I don't know. They haven't done it yet. But uh, isn't this just part of that irrational um, sort of xenophobia that takes root in people, I think? You know, a certain sort of... Um, antipathy towards all things Russian, which I think is not is misdirected. I mean, of course, it's the people in charge of Russia who are leading the actions. And there are brave people in Russia. I saw that woman, you know, pushed away on TV to condemn the actions of the administration. So I certainly don't think Uncle Alert taking it out on cancer patients, the European society taking it out on Russian scientists. I don't think that's going to be helpful. Um, I don't think that's part of our five-pronged attack by the United States. I don't know what was the end of the story. I don't know what, what was the end of the story. Did they... Did they change their statement or uncle alert yeah no i don't think uh, so i think they just uh close their close their account to okay, critics and okay and on that positive note let's turn to the lecture welcome to lecture five of our class this is entitled when are randomized trials necessary this is the interactive lecture of the series so let's see how it goes um thank you all for for attending this class is lots of fun. Uh, I want to start with this very interesting quote. And the quote is, one only has to review the graveyard of discarded therapies to discover how many patients might have benefited from being randomly assigned to the control arm. Tom Chalmers. This is what I think people forget. You know, I always hear people say, well, we can't do a randomized control trial because 50% of people are not going to get the new exciting product. But that's contingent on the fact the new exciting product is actually good. And one only has to review the graveyard of discarded therapies to know it's not always good. Many people have benefit from being assigned to the control arm, actually. Many people died on experimental arms. And this is really important to keep in mind. So much of what I discussed today is featured in this commentary in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation by Logan Powell and myself. It's called, When, randomized trials, when Are Randomized Trials Necessary? Are Smoking and Parachutes Good Counterexamples? In the age of COVID-19, we hear a lot about these topics. I think they're particularly relevant. And I think a lot of people say to me, you know, you don't need a randomized trial for everything you might've heard, because after all, we know smoking is harmful. We never had a randomized trial to prove that, did we? And uh, we also know that you don't want to jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Never was a randomized study to show that. And so people say that because there are no randomized studies for those two things, then we don't need a randomized study for insert your favorite practice. And so I'll tackle that in this lecture. All right, this is the, this is the spectrum. I want you all to imagine, imagine a spectrum. And the spectrum goes from the leftmost, which is a thing you can do to someone else to hurt them as much as you can hurt them. And on the rightmost, a thing you can do to someone else to help them or aid them as much as you can help them. So the leftmost and the rightmost are the biggest effects you can do in life. The dead center is no effect at all. Okay, so somebody can type it in the chat if you wish, you could shout it out. What's something you could do to someone that is the most harmful thing you could do to them? Think harmful. 
Take your white coat off and then think harmful. Don't keep the white coat on and think it. Don't even think it with the white coat on. Take the coat. Then think about harms. Give me something that you would do to someone to harm them. Shoot point blank. Have you seen this talk before? Or you just, you just think that way? Seen the talk before? Because that's what I like. I mean, that's what I like to hear because that's what, that's what I have suggested is, yeah, you shoot a person in a vital body part, I would, I would say to you. Or you hit them with your car going very, very fast. I would say, I would concede that these are not good. Doing something fatal to someone, good, good. The point I want to make is, and you have to be specific, Andrew, tell me what, what fatal thing you're going to do to them. The point I want to make here is that, um, is that, is there a randomized trial of shooting someone in the chest? And I think the answer is no, it's never been studied. But do we all agree that's a very, very harmful thing to do with probably 99% chance of death if you point it at the right place? And the answer is yes, we all agree. Although they're fluke stories of someone surviving such a thing mostly leads to death. Okay, we'll come back to that. What about help somebody? What can you do to somebody that will help them? The biggest thing you can do to help them, I'll put it in the chat. Biggest thing you can do to help them. I have offered, oh, okay, the chat. Oh, I love that one. Pull a drowning person from the water. That's a good one. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna update my routine with that. I like that. Yeah, if, if somebody is drowning and you see them taking in water and they're gulking it and, and then their, their, their arms are flailing less and less, they're looking tired and tired. We all know where that's headed if you don't pull them out of the water. And so I think that you can save a life by pulling them out of the water. If somebody is thrown out of an airplane, you can give them a parachute. I think that'll save their life. Uh, because without a parachute, their risk of death is uh, all but certain. It's actually, there are few case reports of survival from a midair fall. Uh, and with the parachute, there's seven deaths per 10 million jumps or something like that, the National Parachuting Association. So it has a 99.99999% of excise. Pushing someone out of the way of a speeding car that's about to hit them. If I'm on the phone and the bus is about to hit me and you pull me off out and say, stop looking at your phone, you saved my life. You know, if you pull me out of the drowning, pull me out of the water, you saved my life. I agree. And these are things with huge effect sizes in both directions. Okay. Now, what about things with lesser effect sizes? The point I want to make about these, the first the point I want to make here is that when it has a very, very large effect size, either harmful or beneficial, that you don't need any study at all to know it has that effect size. It's visible to the naked eye. You open the windows, it's very hot in here. All right. What about things that are mildly harmful? Um, smoking. Smoking has an odds ratio of 20 for lung cancer, which is big, and maybe three or four for cardiovascular disease. That's big, but it's not shooting someone. It's less than that. Would you rather be shot or have someone make you smoke up a pack? I'd rather have them make me smoke a pack than be shot. Eating bacon. You know, I put eating bacon here because what's the odds ratio? Two, 1.7 in meta-analytic estimates. You know, it's a modest harm. Is it even a harm? It's hard to know. It's very modest effect size. What about biomedicine? Most of what we do, we give people medicines for high blood pressure. Well, that's not quite a parachute, but it's something, isn't it? We give people antibiotics for pneumonia. You know, that's something, still not a parachute, but it's something, something good. We have a acute ST elevation MI and you stent someone open and maybe you improve 30 day mortality by 15 or 20 percentage points. That's huge, but it's not 99.9, .9, you know? Most of what we do in biomedicine in the doctor business is the modest to marginal effect size business. You do things with a marginal effect size, like give somebody a statin who's at low risk potentially, or a big effect size, like stent someone open who's having a heart attack. But very little of what we do is the parachute level. Most of what we do is the modest to moderate effect size business. 
And that's where we do randomized trials. You know, so people who say you don't do, you, there's never a randomized trial of smoking, I would say true. There's also no randomized trial of being shot in the head. But both of those things are harmful. They're harmful for different level, different reasons we believe they're harmful. In the case of shooting someone point blank, uh, it's harmful because the naked eye can tell you that after one or two times you've seen it happen to someone, uh, you know, it's very harmful. Smoking, I think you need, you need, you need a, a epidemiological risk factor studies to identify those harms. And in those types of studies, there are some for people like the original researchers who said that they really want to see odds ratios over three or four to take them credibly because very modest odds ratios could be due to sort of selection biases. And then, you know, eating bacon, eating blueberries, eating uh, Brussels sprouts, you know, we, we've been arguing about these things for 20 years. We're going to argue about it for 20 more. You know, they're very close to the midpoint. They're very, very marginal interventions. But if you really believe that some of those things are beneficial, you can test them in a randomized trial. Randomized trials are done for things of thought to have putative efficacy with modest to marginal effect sizes. But that just happens to be most of what we do in biomedicine. So that's the first thing I want to say. This is the RCT zone. Why do we do randomized trials here? I think we do them because they're interventions where human beings' bias, optimism, and profiteering may result in an incorrect assessment of the effect. And only carefully done RCTs can clarify if it is positive or negative and if it's worth it. What are the benefits of randomization? You know, you always talk about confounding, which means randomization distributes both known and unknown confounders and equilibrates outcomes distributions. And that's true. But we don't talk enough about the other benefits, which is time zero and multiplicity. What is time zero? Time zero is this idea that if you look in the chart and you ask yourself, people who are hospitalized for a heart attack, let's compare people who ate a bag of Cheetos or those that didn't or filled a prescription and those that didn't, you will find that people who filled a prescription live longer than those are, are have a longer time until they're readmitted than those that don't. But that's because this time from being discharged to filling the prescription is guaranteed. You have to have this time in the group to be in that group. It's guaranteed to you. And only this time from here to the end is the, is, the, is the question mark time, because the definition of the group are people who fill the prescription. And that is a problem that plagues observational studies, the so-called guarantee time, which is from this guy to this pill. This is the guarantee time. And here you can replace prescription filling with anything that happens after time zero, like eating a bag of Cheetos or going to a party or seeing your primary care doctor, anything that happens after time zero. If you compare people who are hospitalized with a heart attack, who saw their primary care doctor to those that didn't, People who saw their primary care doctor have a longer time to readmission because this excludes anyone who was readmitted before they had time to see the doctor. Somebody who had the doctor's appointment here and they got readmitted the day before. They have to be in that group. And this group guarantees you at least were not readmitted before you saw the doctor, you know, those kinds of things. So those kinds of studies are just a classic bias of randomized control or of non-randomized studies that they're not getting the time zero right. And the last example, multiple hypothesis testing, which we talked about in the last lecture, in this class. <clears throat> I thought it would be interesting to do a comparison of observational and real world studies to make it clear the different inferences from these two. This was an analysis of uh, almost 200 medical practices that were used in cancer medicine. And the researchers did an observational study in a national database for every single medical practice that we use of these 190 practices. And they found that 55% of them were beneficial in observational study. And this used propensity weighting. So it's kind of a 
I think a pretty decently done observational study. 45% found no benefit, okay? So the things on the left work and the things on the right don't work, okay? Simple as that. If you were in the beneficial category as an observational study, a randomized trial validated it only 40% of the time. So researchers are comparing questions for which we have both observational studies and randomized trials. They actually, they actually did the observational study every time there was a randomized trial. So 40% validated it. If you had a no benefit, 67% of the time were you validated. You were validated much more. What does this mean? These were the things that actually benefit and these are the things that benefit. I think the first thing it means is that most of our practices you know, don't benefit people, uh, at least these things that were tested. The second thing it means is, is that claiming benefit in an observational study means you're more likely than not to be wrong, whereas claiming no benefit means you're more likely than not to be right. In other words, observational studies are upwardly biased. They're more likely to find benefit than the reality. Does that make sense? Let me pause for a second, see what people say. Agree or disagree? Maybe another way to visualize it. Agree or disagree? Where are you all? Maybe another way to visualize it is this. Still see my screen or no? Uh, playing around with the slide. Hold on, let me make it perfect for you to see. And then you're gonna like it. I know you're gonna like it. You're really gonna like this. Okay, since it's so quiet. Will anyone be left by the time I return? Who knows? <laughs> Let's see, okay, okay. Share the screen, I made my slide even better. Okay, okay, okay. So first I showed you the observational studies, 55% found benefit, 45% found no benefit. These were validated, so the green means there's a benefit, and these were validated, meaning there's no benefit, that's the orange. Okay, now I've added, these were the ones that actually do work and these are the ones that actually don't work. And if you sort it, the majority of things don't work. You see that? I need to fix my titles, but you see that visually, like most things actually don't work and the observational study is upwardly biased because their category of benefit is over here. Now, you like that? Looks good, huh? Clear, any thoughts? All right, I'll move on. Ah, oh, something. How are they validated? Uh, yes, I guess by validated, I mean that the observational study and the randomized control trial on the exact cl same clinical question had the same, had the same inference, had the same result. So basically, I'm glad you asked, okay. So 55% of the observational studies say like, I don't know, taking a statin is good or getting radiation is good or taking this chemo is good. And 45% found that taking this pill is no good, taking this radiation is no good. And then if you found that taking the pill was good, 
The same question tested in a randomized trial, 40% of the time it said, yeah, taking the pill is good. But 60% of the time it said, taking the pill, no good. And if you found there's no benefit, like taking the pill is no good, then 67% of the time it validated that and said that it is no good. So this is no, these are both no good and this is good, but you see much fewer of them pass the, the hurdle. And then here, these are the ones that actually worked and these are the ones that actually didn't work. And then when you sort them out, it looks like most things don't work here, whereas most things worked. Okay, is that clearer? Yes, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to prove. Like these are upwardly biased because it looks like the majority of things are working. And here it's like, whoa, most things actually are not working in randomized studies. Okay, many people were asked like, you know, do you need a randomized trial to show harm? I was, you know, I see people say sometimes like, yes, we don't have a randomized trial to show that, you know, an intervention on children uh, is beneficial, but there's certainly no randomized data to show it's harmful either. Well, I don't know. I guess I would say that the, the, ran the randomized trials are done to prove fundamental efficacy. They're not done to prove harm. You don't power and design a randomized trial to prove harm. And I tried to show you that on the first slide, you design them for things that you think have a putative efficacy you don't know. But then the other thing is when you compare randomized and non-randomized studies and their rates of harms, and this, this, is a, this is an approach that looked at many clinical questions where there were both types of studies. And here they're showing you the point estimate of harm of the randomized and non-randomized. You actually find that you know, they're actually much more concordant than, than the example of efficacy. Efficacy often has more discordance than non-randomized non studies for harms. They're actually more faithful for harms. And so I do think you can look at population data sets to ascertain the harms of medical interventions in a way that you can't to, to know for sure they work. And I think that's borne out by many papers that look at concordance of the two outcomes. In other words, how often do they agree? Okay, any thoughts on that? I'll return to that point. Now, what about randomized trials of parachutes? Many years ago, a couple of OB-GYN doctors wrote this paper, parachute used to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge. And they say, did you know there are no randomized trials of wearing a parachute when you fall out of an airplane? And therefore, we don't know for sure if it works. And they say, we think everyone would benefit if the most radical protagonists of evidence-based medicine organize and participate in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. It was a joke, and it appeared in the satirical BMJ. And basically, they're saying that people who think you need a randomized trial for everything should go jump out of an airplane without a parachute. But as I tried to explain, I don't think you need randomized trials for things at the end. I don't think you need it for something with a huge and obvious effect size. I think they're reserved for those places where you have difficulty teasing out some modest effect from no effect at all. For something obvious, you don't need the study, just as you don't need the study for an obvious harm, like getting shot in the chest. That's obviously harm. And, and pulling a drowning man out of the water is obviously beneficial. You don't need to randomize anyone to that. But can anyone really say that taking a statin pill is an obvious benefit? Do you see people taking statins? They look the same as those who don't. You can follow thousands with your eye and bear, and you will never tell a difference. You really need huge sample sizes to see that difference and you need statistical rigor. And that's why you do randomized trials. You do them for very marginal effect sizes. So back to this point, the parachutes analogy. Um, this is a commonly used objection 
against doing randomized trials. And throughout this pandemic, I think, you know, there's, there are many topics, but specifically non-pharmacological interventions for COVID-19, where people said, we can't do a randomized trial, they are a parachute. But does anyone believe that anything we did had a 99.9999% effect size? I think it's implausible. Everything we did has, even the things that work, they have some modest effect size, probably in the five to 15% range. Vaccines have the biggest effect size. And that effect size was, you know, initially 90% reduction in severe disease, which is huge. But, and initially, you know, 90% reduction in symptomatic disease. But over time, that effect size has become different. I mean, now vaccines, vaccine effectiveness is maybe 20 to 40% for symptomatic disease. Severe disease, question mark. I mean, I think it's 70 to not 85%, something in that ballpark, maybe 60 to 85%. Still good, but, you know, it's not what it was initially. And, and that's the best thing we did, the vaccination. Other things we did probably have mar more marginal effect sizes. And this is good. I mean, it's great to be vaccinated, uh, but it's not a parachute. And, and the other thing about it is we actually did do randomized trials of the vaccines, right? Like we did them and they were positive. We did not do them because it wasn't visible to the naked eye without doing such a study who was doing better because in those studies, the majority of people, 90% plus, uh, they didn't get COVID at all, you know? So it'd be very hard to see with your naked eye. You need to do a controlled study. Um, and that's the best intervention. What about more modest interventions? I think many years ago, there were people who said that appendectomy for appendicitis is a parachute. You can never do a randomized trial of appendectomy because we know for sure it has a benefit. Is that true? Well, after they said that, there were four randomized trials of appendectomy. And the pooled analysis does show appendectomy is better than antibiotics. I will agree. It does show that. But it's not a lot better. I mean, antibiotic treatment was associated with a 63% success rate at one year. And then, uh, you know, appendectomy is associated with a slightly higher, it's a higher success rate, sure. But, it, but it's not a 99% difference. It's not like if you didn't get an appendectomy, you were dead for sure. And if you got it, you're alive for certain. That wasn't the case. And in fact, proof that it wasn't a parachute was that they did four randomized studies proving that it wasn't a parachute. We could test it. We did test it. It's been done. It's over. You know, we still do appendectomy. But if you were in a resource poor setting, you didn't have a surgeon, you're probably going to crank up the antibiotics and see if they get better. And, you know, a lot of people are going to get better and they're not going to need that surgery. That's the reality. The majority of people will actually. So prior parachutes were no such thing. Here's a figure that's, I think, a brilliant figure by Tiago Pereira, Ralph Horwitz, and who used to be the chair of medicine at Stanford and John Yonides. And basically what it's showing you is the truth about medical practices. So they went through that Cochrane database, which has 200,000 randomized controlled trials for 80,000 medical practices. And they pulled out the biggest effects they could find. Things that had a, you know, uh, odds ratio of five or greater, which is sort of a, a four or five fold reduction in risk, which is like a really big effect. Um, they pulled all those things out. And on one axis, they plot the benefit in the, um, in, the, in the best study, that's on the x-axis. And on the y-axis, they plot the benefit in the meta-analytic estimate, so the pooled analysis of all the studies. And so they're saying, what happens if you take the very best things in biomedicine and you plot them against the real effect and in, in you pool the studies? And the blue line is one-to-one. -one. So in other words, if the best study was reflective of the real effect, all of the dots would be grouped around the line. But if the best study is a huge distortion of the real effect, all of the dots would be below the line to the right. And in fact, all of the dots are below the line to the right. You know, 
85% of things, when you pool the effect size, the effectiveness is going to get smaller and smaller. Um, what does this mean? I think it means that very few things have very large treatment effects. And in this study, they only found one intervention with a very large treatment effect in pooled meta-analytic estimate on mortality. And that was ECMO for neonates, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for neonates in respiratory distress. What does this mean? I mean, I certainly believe there are interventions in biomedicine with a very large effect size, liver transplant for fulminant hepatic failure, antibiotics for some conditions, um, uh, ECMO for neonates, but I believe they're few and far between. You know, the vast majority of things we do have a very, very modest effect size. Take for instance, this. This is something that many people thought was a parachute. You couldn't do a randomized study, but they did do two randomized studies. One is an individual randomized trial. One is a cluster randomized trial. One had no detectable significant benefit. Actually, looked at this one instead. And then the other one had no detectable benefit for this product, but this one had a benefit. That benefit was an 11% relative risk reduction from 0.76 to 0.69, not from 100% to 0%. You know, the absolute risk reduction was 0.15-ish, and the relative risk reduction was 11% which is a benefit, sure, but it's not a parachute level benefit. You know, Most things we do have modest effect sizes. That's the reality of life. Some advances have been tested without randomized trials. This is a list kept by Paul Glazius and colleagues from Australia of interventions that have been widely accepted without randomization, like puncturing an abscess. Sure, absolutely agree that that has a, certainly a symptomatic benefit in the short term. Uh, combination chemo for testicle cancer, yeah. I can cure 90 plus percent of people. So I guess what I want to say is that I'm 100% certain that there are medical interventions that have been widely accepted without a randomized trial that actually work. I'm 100% certain that there have been medical interventions that have been widely accepted for without a randomized trial that actually work that could have been subjected to a randomized trial. We just didn't do it. The effect size is more modest. And I'm 100% certain that in the million interventions we do in biomedicine, this does not apply to most things. We've circulated this list for years. There's like 250 things on the list. We're doing like 2 million things in biomedicine each year and 200 make the cut, you know? So it's a small fraction of things. One in a thousand, one in 10,000, yeah. But most things we do in medicine have modest to marginal effect sizes at best. Most things don't have big effect sizes when, test, when looked at very rigorously in pooled analytic estimates. Most individual studies with a large effect size are a distortion of reality. Most of what we do is modest. And that's why randomization is so good because it's a great way to separate a modest effect from no effect at all. We took this parachutes paper that everyone was a buzz about. Buzz, 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 buzz. We took that paper and we asked, when people cite this paper, paper are, they, are they delivering in that citation? Are they bringing useful things to that table? We found, this was a few years ago, we've actually replicated this and have a bigger paper that came out this year we found that there were 822 citations to that original 2003 parachutes paper in the BMJ. Of that 822 people who cite that parachute, only 35 people named a different medical practice that they said was a parachute. You know, you're saying, you know, you're saying uh, par parachutes don't need randomized trials. Well, did you know stenting uh, renal artery stenosis doesn't need a randomized trial either. 35 times people have the courage to say things, but that also means that you know, 800 times people are just citing that paper, but they won't say what it's analogous to. They won't analogize it to something. 
I think because they know it's not a parachute. It doesn't have a 99% effect size. It turns out when they do analogize something to a parachute, which you would imagine is the creme de la creme de biomedical literature, only 17 of them had never been tested in a randomized trial. Half of them have been tested in a randomized study. If it were really a parachute, no one would have done that study. They did the study because I'm sure they didn't believe it was a parachute. So that half of it is just an exaggeration off the bat. And when they were studied in randomized trials, six were positive, five were negative, and five were mixed, which is roughly the ratio of what happens with any randomized trial selected at random. Uh, so they're really kind of like no better than the average bear. And the effect sizes when they had a measurable effect was absolute risk reduction 30 down to absolute risk reduction 11. You know, that's good. 30 is great. 30% absolute risk reduction is huge. But again, parachutes are 99.999. It's not, it's not a parachute. It's a third of a parachute. It's like jumping out of the airplane with a towel. No, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not a parachute. All right, I'll skip that. Another objection commonly raised is that randomized trials are not reflective of real world patients. So if you want to know what happens in the real world, you have to do an observational study. Well, the first part, I mean, these things are true, but not exactly what you think. Okay, randomized trials are not reflective of real world patients. I'll give you an analogy. Um, flying on, on United Airlines is miserable. Who agrees that flying in, let's talk about basic economy on almost any commercial airliner is a terrible experience. If you agree, put in the chat, it's awful. Just, just say it's awful. I need to hear it because it is awful. The, the knee room, I mean, come on. I'm six feet tall. I can't even fit my knees in that thing. The head space, they keep moving the head closer. You almost, you feel like you're suffocating on the screen. And some of them build that screen in. They build that screen in. You can't even turn it off. It's shining light in your eye. It's terrible, terrible. Okay, does that mean that you can't have a nice airplane? No. People who fly on private jets, it's the same airplane. It's the same Boeing. They just have it real nice in there. They got a couch, lots of space, you know, better meals. My point is that saying that randomized trials are not reflective of real world patients, that's, the thing, that's like saying United Airlines is a bad airline. It doesn't mean that the plane is broken and it doesn't mean that randomization is broken. You can do a better randomized trial. There's no rule that says you should only study people who don't have medical, pro who don't have medical problems and are very fit. You can study whoever you want to study. You can do a pragmatic randomized trial on average people. There's no rule that said you had to make United Airlines have the seats so close together. In fact, when I was growing up, they were further apart. So I guess what I want to say here is that we can do a randomized study of average people. It's called a pragmatic randomized study. And there are many such examples and they yield results that are applicable. You can also do an observational study, but then you suffer from the problems of causal inference that I've described. Confounding time zero and multiple hypothesis testing, which we discussed in the last lecture. Ah. But randomized trials don't measure endpoints that matter to people like quality of life. Again, there's no, there's no reason that they can't. They can measure whatever you want in a randomized trial. You just have to pass out the forms and collect it. Yes, they don't always measure that, but that's because the people running them don't want to measure that because they're trying to bring a usually lousy product to the market. But there's no rule that says you can't do a good randomized study. In fact, you can. Randomization just gives you the validity of having strong causal inference. Everything else is up to you, what you look at and how you do it. Here's something that I always read, the burden of proof. People say that it's unethical to do a randomized study of some things. Let's consider that. Let's take, for instance, um, you know, osteoarthritis in the knee. 
and somebody says, to do a randomized study of, uh, of the osteoarthritis procedure, that, that, uh, that uh, arthroscopic surgery, the control arm, it shouldn't just be taking a pill. It should be the closest thing to it. It should be a sham surgery where they go in and make you think they do it, but they don't do it. Well, then somebody would say, well, that's unethical because you could harm the control arm. They're not going to gain anything. They might get a knee infection just because they were in the control arm. That's awful. Well, I think you should think about it this way. I, it, the ethics of sham surgery. Number one, either you do the randomized trial or you don't. Okay. If you do the randomized trial with sham surgery as the control arm and the surgery works, then yeah, you harm the control arm. They had the risk of anesthesia, infection, and bleeding. So one arrow worth of harm. That's not good. But if you do the sham control study and it doesn't work, which is what happened in reality, actually both, both arms were harmed, were they not? They both had the risk of the procedure, but nobody got benefit. It didn't work. It's no better than the placebo effect. But if you don't do the surgery and it works, well, then nobody was harmed. But if you don't do the surgery and it doesn't work, then you're harming tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people for decades until somebody figures out it doesn't work. Lots more people are harmed by not doing the study. So people who say it's unethical to do the study, I would argue back, it's unethical not to do the study. You're playing Russian roulette and you could be harming hundreds of thousands of people with something you don't know that works. Why are you doing that? Thoughts? Any debate? And to be honest, actually, even if it works, you're still harming people because if you don't persuade other people that it works, there's a lot of people who could have had the surgery, but you know, they may have had a referral delay because they're like, eh, I don't know for sure it works or you know, it's never really convincingly proven benefit. Eh, we'll do medical management first, et cetera. So actually you could be underutilizing a procedure by not doing the study as well. I need to update my figure. Thoughts? It's a tough, tough, tough crowd. <clears throat> okay. The point I want to make here is this. This is a spectrum of cardiovascular disease. Ah, oh, so this is it. Are patients charged for sham surgeries? I would say the answer to that question is people enrolled in those studies, usually the answer would be no. They wouldn't bill insurance for those um, anesthesia. I mean, usually if they're really doing the study well, they do it at a place, to be honest, I think the majority of the ones I'm aware of do it at a place with a national healthcare system, also known as a civilized country where people don't get bills for everything. Yeah. So I think those are the places that do those kinds of studies best. But I do agree. I don't think it would be right to bill them. Um, but, uh, but actually, maybe the same logic, you could argue the same logic, because if you if you don't do the study, you bill in 100,000 people, you're billing them a lot, you know, I mean, so you could argue that, but I think you could easily say that, you know, we can afford to pay for the study and just pay for both arms, make sure you have no copay so that we can really figure out what this works. Certainly before we pay for it in Medicare beneficiaries and drop a, a couple billions on it. Okay, um, this is a spectrum of cardiovascular disease from nothing to like very bad disease that's blocked up all at once. And if you look at all the randomized controlled trials, and this is a old, this is a paper we wrote in 2012, so it's maybe 10 years old now. But you know, at the time, randomized trials had shown benefit here. I think they have finally claimed this territory. I think they have proven a benefit for stenting a little bit at lower uh, TIMI risk scores. I think they got a little bit further on the arrow. This is where stenting has a routine benefit. 
And we had a randomized trial over here for kind of lesser disease and stenting was found to have no benefit over medical management. And there was this huge unknown territory. And the reason I show this is to say that like, you know, people always say that, I, I guess, let me put it a different way. For almost every single thing I can think about in biomedicine, every single thing, even the things we know for sure work, there's an unknown territory. There's a cut, there's a feather edge where, yeah, I know it works, but does it work there? You know, and so if you take any practice that people don't want to do randomized trials on, you can always find that place of equipoise, that place where, yeah, I don't know for sure. For instance, you know, if you're talking about knee replacement, the, and you want to do a randomized trial of knee replacement versus no replacement, the first place you do the study wouldn't be people with like joint instability. It would be people with sort of mild osteoarthritis who are getting the surgery anyway, which happens in America. Do those people benefit? You have to find the place of equipoise, find that location. Uh, who funds those studies? Yeah, so this is a question about who funds those studies. I think the studies that have been done to date that disprove the efficacy of surgeries, like, and there are several, um, they are funded mostly by uh, either VA, NIH, or payers from other countries. I know a gentleman who did them in Finland, and they were funded through the Finnish government. Governments fund those, because governments would, I mean, governments are the only people who fund it. Um, I think the joint makers are never going to fund those, you know. In fact, actually, we have we have some data on that from one of the prior lectures, I think on reversal. But yes, I mean, you may have, I mean, in a prior lecture, I made this argument. People will, and I'm coming to this money part. Actually, I'll save it for that part because I have the next, I, the next, okay, I knew I was coming to it, it's costs. I mean, people always say that randomized trials are expensive, expensive, expensive. Is that true? You know, is it true that they're expensive? Um, a conventional randomized control trial can cost maybe $2,000 per patient. And this is a slide I've taken from a randomized trial of mechanical aspiration of the thrombus in the heart, but it's basically some cardiology procedure. And I'll show you in a second how they did it, but they did it for $50 per person, 2% of the cost of a conventional randomized trial. How did they do that? They just built this into the EMR. Every time you had a person who needed this procedure in the EMR, this is what the EMR would look like. And it would basically pull this up on your screen and say, hey, you're about to order this procedure. Did you know we're running this randomized study? Do you want to include yourself? And I've already filled out all the form for you. It's automatically filled out. All you have to do is hit the green, the green button at the bottom and we'll randomly assign you to an arm. Get the patient's consent and let's do it, okay? And it was built in, it was built into the use and it was all across the country. And it was so easy that they had 60% of people in the country who were undergoing the procedure agreed to be randomized to this new device or no device. And they actually found that they could do it, uh, I left the figure out, for $50 a person. So there's nothing about randomization that says it has to be expensive. All you need is a coin and you could do it as long as you had a, a way to collect the data. I mean, the reason it's expensive is that we have, again, it's just like United Airlines, we've added all this stuff. Do they have to have someone in the front every time you take off the airplane, say, in the event of an emergency, there are six exits over there, there, there. You know, you can imagine, I, I joke, you know where the exits are. And guess what? If you were in the situation where something bad happened, I'm not necessarily sure that that little briefing is enough to help you out. To be honest, my understanding of airplanes is when something bad happens, it's not gonna be good. It's not gonna be good. It's not, let's just say that the, the, the deciding factor, I doubt is going to be that little speech at the beginning. And that speech about how to buckle up, not sure that's doing much. I don't know. Call me crazy. Call me crazy if you disagree. I'm not sure that little speech about how to buckle a seatbelt is doing a lot. 
And then they also say that in the event of landing, you have to like lean forward, put your head between your legs. If that, if something is wrong in that airplane, I don't think putting your head between your legs is going to do much. I don't know. If I, call me crazy, but I'm going to be sitting up. And I don't care what the consequences are. You know, I don't care. I'm not going to be putting my head between my legs. That airplane. First of all, I can't even bend over. There's not enough leg, there's enough leg room anymore. My head will hit the thing. To be honest, they've ruined the seats. Anyway, anyway, I did get distracted. Lars, uh, this is uh, Benjamin Speck and colleagues in the Marta group, making randomized trials affordable. That's very clever. They've come up with an abbreviation. But they basically say that if you do a systematic review of all the studies on the cost of randomized trials, you'll find the median cost is 400 bucks. I think that's a low ball estimate, but you know, it is what it is. These are people who report price. My point is just that it doesn't have to be a lot. Even if, if this is not the true median, it certainly is the price that some people did it at. So therefore it could be done at a lower price. Okay, so I'm gonna go back to my core slide and make my final argument. My final argument is this. My final argument is that we do not do randomized trials of harm. We do risk factor epidemiology for modest harms. And for big harms, we use our naked eye. If somebody wants to make a factory and dump out some new chemical into the drinking water, I think the precautionary principle is reasonable that I wouldn't be comfortable with them pumping their chemical into the water and I don't need to do a randomized trial to prove harm before I ask them to stop pumping their chemical in the drinking water. I think it's enough to say, might be, put it in a barrel and throw it away, or I don't know, whatever you do with your chemicals, mitigate that chemical. You know, we don't know. But we are not in the business, mostly, of mitigating harms in biomedicine. We're mostly in the business of proscribing recommendations. And even things that we think are harmful, like if we think eating bacon is modestly harmful, you're not in the eating bacon game as a doctor. You're in the telling your patient not to eat bacon game, aren't you? It's different. You're in the telling your patient not to eat bacon game. What's the effect size of telling your patient not to eat bacon? Well, whatever the effect size of eating bacon is, it's gotta be smaller in the other direction because of all the people you tell not to eat bacon, most are probably not gonna listen to you because that's the way bacon works. Once you smell it, you're not gonna listen. You're not gonna think about what the doctor told you last month. And so it's smaller than that for sure. And a universal recommendation to tell all your patients not to eat bacon, you know, it might not have, it might not make much of a difference. Um, I suspect the true effect size will be close to zero. Similarly with telling your patients to eat blueberries, et cetera, very modest effect size. Um, most of what we do, controlling blood pressure, even the surgeries you think are all wonderful. They're, they're much more modest effect size than you think. And that's why we really need randomization, I think, because we need to overcome confounding time zero multiplicity. They're just not well done in observational studies. And I showed you when people tried to do it well, they still were notoriously in error. They found a lot of things that didn't work and they thought that they didn't work. All right, I'm gonna stop here. I'm gonna take questions.